The Sewers of Paris is independent, ad-free, and listener-supported. Head over to patreon.com slash mattbaum to join the folks who make the show possible and check out the rewards for backers. Hello and welcome to The Sewers of Paris. My guest this week is Amos Mack, one of the founders of the magazine Original Plumbing a decade ago, and more recently, one of the writers on the reboot of the show Gossip Girl. Amos was working in queer nightlife when he started the magazine as a fun, sexy side project, but it was a runaway hit and took on a life of its own, giving him a foot in the door to launch his career in television. We'll have that conversation in a minute. First, a reminder that The Sewers of Paris is on Twitter and Facebook. I post clips of the stuff that we talk about on each episode. And I hope you'll join me for our next fun-friendly live stream on May 9th at 11 a.m. Pacific. For the live streams, I've been playing some super relaxing Animal Crossing while we all just chat about what we've been up to, chill out, and take our minds off of, you know, everything. There's a link at the top of the Sewers of Paris Twitter feed. And by the way, if you like nerdy queer podcasts, you may enjoy my narrative comedy shows Queens of Adventure and Queens of Adventure Legends for an escape into a world of fantasy with drag queens playing Dungeons and Dragons. Queens of Adventure features an ongoing fantasy story with a regular cast, and Queens of Adventure Legends features recordings of live shows and standalone stories. Queens of Adventure Legend is perfect for new listeners, with adventures sized for one or two sittings and introductions at the start of each episode. You can subscribe to both shows at queensofadventure.com or search your favorite podcast app. Now, here's Amos. Well, this week I'm speaking with Amos Mack, an artist, a writer, an editor, and founder of Original Plumbing. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Matt. So what is the entertainment that changed your life? Definitely one of the earliest things I remember is the film Stand By Me. And hmm. that was, I don't know if you've ever seen it um, with... I haven't. Okay. Well, it's based on a state, Stephen King novel. And I was about six years old watching this film. And it's not, I would say, I mean, it's about four best friends, 12-year-old boys. River Phoenix is in it, uh, Corey Feldman, and uh, Will Wheaton, and one other guy whose name I can't forget, and I feel bad because I think he grew up to be a babe or something. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really about a turning point in these young boys' lives, um, you know, the year before they kind of become young men. Um, it's, you know, when you realize who your friends are from when you were in elementary school, but when things evolve in your life and you realize that maybe you're not all, you're not, you know, meant to be best friends forever. Uh, but it's pretty dark. Mm. It's pretty dark. <laughs> So how did you find this film and what was it about it that spoke to you? I remember my father was stealing HBO um, from, I'm not sure how he had one of those illegal HBO hookups. This was in the eighties and it aired on HBO and I don't know who it was, but someone taped it on VHS, either my mom or my dad. And it became, um, you know, one of the movies, one of the few movies that we had. And it was something that I think what I felt so connected to was the fact that these guys, you know, they were a little bit older than me, obviously, since I was like six or seven watching this show film, but there was something about the brotherhood and the, the camaraderie that these guys had. And I remember distinctly, I mean, there's this one scene where they're, they're basically on the looking for a dead body. Um, there, there's a young boy their age who went missing picking blueberries. So they go and they try, they walk the train tracks in this small Oregon town and they're looking for um, to try and find him because there's a reward, but also they just want to be seen as heroes. They want to, they, it, it becomes this experience of, you know, they're trying to find this boy, but really they're finding themselves and, and um, they all go through 
a moment where they all break down and cry at one point, which I remember looking back as an adult, it's like, you don't really see guys cry in, in films a lot. Um, and that was hmm. something that stuck with me. There's a scene where they all fought with her, like have to walk through a lake and they, um, they get leeches all over their bodies. <laughs> it's kind of like an iconic scene. You said it was like the brotherhood and the camaraderie that spoke to you. Is that something that you were like, felt like you were missing in your own life? I think so. Um, I think, you know, growing up I, I, as a trans man, you know, when I was six and seven, I, I wasn't seeing my, I wasn't sure what was going on, I think, like inside of me. And I don't even know. I mean, though I didn't know the world, the word trans existed at the time, for sure. Um, but I do know that looking at these boys on screen and their stories and, you know, even how they dressed was something that I, that I connected with and that I longed for. Where were you growing up? Was it like a place that was similar to the setting of that movie? No, I grew up, well, I was born in Augusta, Georgia, and I lived there until mm -hmm. I was about seven or eight. And then I moved to um, outside of Philadelphia with my mother. So never lived okay. in like a super, super rural area. Um, Georgia was more, you know, we did have like, actually had like a creek going through our backyard at one point, but it wasn't, it was still like, you know, a suburb. Did you feel like watching that movie, like, did you have any awareness of like what it, like that that you were trans or what trans even was at that time or was that you know something that you had to discover later that was something much later i think that as a as a kid at that age watching that show watching the film i feel that it was the the boyhood that i was longing for perhaps or that i was connecting with because i was always boyish um as a kid and that was something that i wasn't you know I, but i wasn't necessarily hanging out with boys you know i didn't have like a group of mm -hmm. boy male friends at the time. So it was definitely something that I didn't know it was a word that I had a word for at all. It was just um, a connection and a desire and probably, you know, saw myself in these young guys. What were the, like you said, you liked a lot of boyish stuff. So like, what were the things you were into? You know, climbing trees, um, playing with He-Man and <laughs> it's just like the cliche mm -hmm. things like, you know, with little cars, um, thing, things that I think are more non-gendered like i loved art i loved painting i loved getting really messy with you know painting on canvases as a kid and um i loved animals always like stuffed animals and just being very active which i feel you know if you're going to gender something i guess it would be like climbing trees but not really i don't know it's stupid to say it now so you had um stand by me is sort of like your your blueprint for it sounds like that's how you kind of thought of like oh that's how boys play together or that's like how boys are or um, that's the the moment before boys become men. Is, is that kind of the, the place that it occupied for you in your head? I think so. I mean, also this took the film took, takes place in like the fifties or something like that, or the early sixties mm. when like there's greasers. I forget the exact year it was supposed to be in, but you know, like they're all like they have like the cigarettes rolled up in their up their white t shirt, you know, and there was like a bad group of older kids that were like trying to like find the dead body first, and it was like you know who's going to find them first, the good kids or like the older bad kids. Um, mm -hmm. So. The wait, what was the question? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, so like, did this movie like occupy the space in your brain where you were like, okay, that's that's how boys are, and that's how boys become men? Um, I don't think I thought about boys becoming men. I think that I I thought of um, maybe that's how boys are, or or like, or not even that. I think I thought that looks like a lot of fun, you know, playing in the woods, having mm -hmm. a, a a private um, treehouse with a special knock. Um, you know, walking along the the train tracks and, you know, camping out with your friends and, you know, and sharing stories. And one of the 
young man is a, is a, wants to be a writer and tells stories and um, by fire by by a big fire while they're roasting marshmallows. It's, I don't know. It's just a very they're not these quintessential archetype of young man that you see in like a, a regular like teen drama or, or comedy um, because it's Stephen mm-hmm. King. So it's based on these very emotional, dark, all these people come from like very emotional, dark places. So even as tw- at 12, 12 years old, you know, they're, they're well thought out characters. And um, when you usually see a young person on television, like a 12 year old boy on TV, I think it's probably portrayed in a very flat type of way. Does that make sense? Um, but in, in this film specifically, they're so well-rounded and, you know, there's a lot that, uh, of character development and a lot of backstory for each one of them, um, so, mm-hmm. which makes it extra emotional. When you moved to Philadelphia, did you, um, what changed in, in your life there? Like, did you find, like, it was easier to do that, like, the, the boyish stuff that you liked or was it harder? Like, was that something that just kind of stayed the same for you? I think because of the age that I was, you know, eight moving to Philadelphia, that it was, I had not yet reached um, puberty. Um, so it gets really, it gets a lot harder when you reach that age, that age of, you know, 12, 13. That's when, when gender really starts to turn its ugly head in a way where, you know, all these ideas of who you're supposed to be and um, what people your age are supposed to wear slash look like slash wear their hair and what they're supposed to do to their bodies. And, all of these things, that's when it really comes out in like, I'd say middle school. So it did get harder in Philadelphia, but that was, I think, only because of my age. I can't imagine really what it would have been like if I was in Georgia during that time. I feel like it might have been harder. Did you have like, um, like role models, like male role models, like to look up to then? Like, were there images in the media of, in the same way that those boys gave you kind of a model of like, that looks like fun? Did you, did you see like, other people your age or maybe older that you're like, Oh, that also, I I also like the way that that character is. Um, I think honestly, boy bands like new kids on the block. Um, Mm -hmm. that was a huge turning point for me where I saw, you know, where you're seeing these like young men in the media and I became like totally obsessed. Um, and it was just really interesting. Um, that was very much my, you know, transitional period of coming into a teen, a very young teen and and finding, just finding a connection in these boy bands and and teen magazines and something that I still collect to this day, by the way, (laughs) I still collect teen magazines. Yeah. From all over the country or from all over the world. Um, And I still have some from the nineties, but what were the ones that you were reading back then? I was reading teen beat. I subscribed to Mm -hmm. that and bop. Um, you know, they sold them in the, in the grocery store at the time, like pretty close to the, the checkout. Um, but I would always um, save my money and, and buy them in bulk. And uh, what else? Would, those are the two main ones. I don't know if they're still around. There's also Tiger Beat, but Tiger Beat was more, I think, in the 70s. So it was Teen Beat and Bop and Big Bopper. Mm-hmm. And you said it was like the boy bands that were that you were super into. Yeah, it was the boy bands. It was like... Um, who else did I like? I liked baseball players for a minute and that was weird. <laughs> I, I collected baseball cards before I ever even watched a baseball game. I just really wanted to mm-hmm. collect something. I think at the time, um, that was like right before I became like heavily into boy bands as an aesthetic. <laughs> it was like, did you go to any like boy band concerts? No, I never did. Yeah. 
um, we didn't really have a lot of money and it was like either, it was always like I could either choose to have a birthday party or I could choose to go and see new kids on the block, you know, uh, for my birthday as a, as a big gift. But, um, so yeah, I never did. I never got to see them, but I was thoroughly obsessed. You know, I had like the sleeping bag. I had so many articles, all the items that you could have with their faces plastered on it. I had the dolls. I still have the dolls actually. And, um, wow. Yeah. So besides the, but besides that, uh, Pee Wee Herman was a big, um, inspiration for me, I believe. Um, a big, I call him my masculinity, uh, inspiration. <laughs> that is so interesting. Cause like when you think of Pee Wee Herman, like masculine is maybe not the first word that comes to mind, mm-hmm. but like, what was it about Pee Wee that called to you? Um, well, it was the film, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which was mm-hmm. another one that we taped off of HBO, I believe, <laughs> in the same year. So. It was just like an ob- objectively great film. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and actually, recently in, I think it was, where are we? We were in Pasadena or something, walking through a neighborhood, and we found the Pee Wee house, his house, that was filmed, oh, wow. that he filmed the exteriors of. Um, yeah, it's still there. And it's actually on the map as like a, uh, and not as like a historical monument, but it's on the map, on Google Maps. It says Pee-wee Big, Pee-wee's Big Adventure House. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think that like what drew me to Pee-wee was his goofiness. Um, the fact that like, you know, he had a higher voice and, and he was unapologetic and he looked, you know, he wore this funny suit that when the, you know, with the, and the pants were a little bit too high. And um, just the fact that he just seemed unapologetic with being goofy and a class clown. And, and um, he wasn't, uh, looked down upon for that. So in Wee's Big Adventure, he, you know, had a love interest, which is, you know, um, interesting. And he uh, had friends and he had cool friends too, you know? So it was like, they all didn't, people weren't like making fun of Wee for being who he was. Hmm. Yeah. He, um, and, and, you know, kind of similar, I guess, sort of to Stand By Me. He's got like a group of friends. Uh, they're super different from like between the two movies, but there's still that like little chosen family going on for him. Yeah, absolutely. And then Pee Wee's uh, Playhouse was something that, you know, of course I watched every week once it started. Um, so there's like a lot of like LGBTQ like subtext to, to a lot of those things. Like, you know, obviously Pee Wee never really talks about um, gender and sexual orientation beyond like, I think having a girlfriend in the movie, but uh, you know, and the same with, with the boy bands, there's something um, very, um, I guess, depending on how you want to read them, there's something kind of queer about the way that boy bands present. Did you have any like explicitly LGBTQ role models or influence or anything like that in your life? I really can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, I always think that Pee Wee Herman is the closest thing to that, even though Pee Wee Herman was never, has never really been out or any, or has ever, you know, talked about that side of, you know, because Pee Wee's a character, um, and it, mm-hmm. it wasn't Paul Rubens that I was looking up to. It was Pee Wee Herman specifically. So um, I'm trying to think right now. And I really don't have, I don't think I have that at all um, from the, from that age, you know, from middle school to high school, there wasn't that for me because I wasn't really, and I wasn't looking for that, that I know of. I know I, there is no, so many of my friends are like, you know, they loved Ellen DeGeneres or they loved Buffy, like all these things that were like the iconic queer people or thing or shows to love. And mm. uh, I, I can't, it just doesn't, it's not the same for me. So when did that start? Like, where did you find your first like queer role model and, and particularly like find your first like trans representation? Probably through books, you know, um, Jameson Green's Becoming a Visible Man. And this is when I was in my twenties. So 
you know, mm-hmm. there this wasn't and there wasn't anything in the media at the time, like visually that I can remember. Um, so it was really me seeking out books outside of the internet, you know, so there was live journal and that was something that I, I was able to dive in and, and read about all these other trans guys experiences. And that was helpful for me. Um, but outside of that, when it comes to actual media, damn, I really can't think of anything like, you know, you said that it was, it was in your twenties when you started like reading about uh, like other trans people, was there something that like prompted you to go looking for that? Um, yeah, I think it was like to just not feel alone and, and to feel like there was someone out there who I, who had gone through this before me, who I could read about and, and see, you know, what their experience was like. Um, even if it had happened years before, um, or decades before it was like, I, it was so helpful to read someone else's. So that's why at the time there was a lot of these like anonymous blogs, a lot of anonymous live journals of people, um, documenting their transition. I'm talking about trans guys specifically that I was seeking out. So, um, a lot of these blogs have since disappeared, um, because for various reasons, you know, I feel like some of them went offline when, when the guys have decided to live stealth in their later years, you know, that kind of thing. Um, because they would, there'd be like a picture every week. Um, and like a voice clip every week to hear a voice change and like all of their like, you know, surgical photographs and things like that. So those disappeared slowly. And the live journal, I mean, live journal, I'm sure a lot of them still exist, but it was really to not feel, to feel like I was not alone. What was that process like to, you know, to, to read about what other people had been through? Did you have a moment where you were like, okay, yes, this, this is me, or maybe this is me, but like with some changes? Yeah, I think that a lot of it was, it's a lot of that, you know, both of that, a lot of it being like, well, this is not my experience, but this is this one guy's experience and taking and choosing what you think, you know, what you connect with. Like I was connecting with people's testosterone, you know, weekly testosterone voice updates or the uh, people sharing stories of when they were first quote unquote passing, you know, in the world or at work or you know, and coming out stories to, with their with their families, that kind of thing. And I wasn't so much um, as interested in connecting with the stories that were about you know seeming um, uh, as heterosexual as possible, that kind of thing. You know, there was a lot of blogs that were like people being upset if they were being read as as a gay man instead of a, a heterosexual man once they started to pass and things like that. So I always wanted, I always preferred to be seen, you know, as as queer as, you know, as a gay man, I, I just wasn't as, uh, I never felt straight. <laughs> when, were you still in Philadelphia when, when that was going on? No, I was in New York at this time. I've moved around quite a bit. <laughs> I'm in Los Angeles now, but I was in, uh, New York. Yeah. When I'm, and, and San Francisco between those two places. Okay. Well, those are two good places to do some queer exploration. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> what was the, like, were you discovering, like, a big queer world of, like, other other people and places to go and, like, nightlife and, and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, like, in my early 20s and I was in San Francisco and there was, like, um, there was, like, a large group of people that had just started, that were, like, transitioning. And that was probably the first time I saw, like, trans men um, and trans guys. And it was really, I think that maybe your other question about... Um, looking for them in the media or finding guys like that in the media. Like I wasn't seeing that, but I was seeing that in the community. I was seeing that at bars. I was seeing that out, you know, and in friend groups and things like that. So that was something that, um, 
was not yet ready for the mainstream in terms of uh, television film representation. Um, when you think of like pop culture and things like that, but I was seeing it and I worked in nightlife and I worked um, as a barista for years. And, you know, so this, it was, I was very much um, a part of being a queer person in a queer city. And when I was in San Francisco and then when I was in New York, um, I just started to transition. What was the queer nightlife work that you were doing? Um, I worked at a, a bar called The Stud as a, I took money at the door for a couple different nightclubs. So I didn't work, I wasn't hired by the bar. I was hired by the people that were throwing the event, you know, the, the uh, promoters and the, the event producers. So I took mm. money at the door for a number of years at these different events. At the time, Electro Clash was very popular. So that's like gives you the time frame of uh, when I was doing that. And then later on, it was um, after Original Plumbing Magazine started, which was in 2009, we right immediately started having events as like fundraisers to fund the first issue and then um, would have release parties um, a few times a year in different cities even. So that became, became uh, you know, I became more of a producer in that in that realm slash host because it was my event well tell me about starting uh, original plumbing how did that come about well it was like 2009 2008 2009 i was in san francisco and i was photographing trans men in the community because i was like i really wanted to like put together a little photocopied zine of like portraits of trans men and then have them and then interview them and have it be like a little you know a place where trans guys could speak for themselves original plumbing was very inspired was really uh aesthetically inspired by butt magazine um mm-hmm. which was a gay culture arts magazine that was like heavily uh based on photographs and interviews of people who are creating culture and artists and even people who were just you know the regular joe mechanic you know who is either queer or um just being interviewed about queer stuff so i wanted to make a little something like that like a one-off about trans men and um do it myself and uh, i was photographing my friend Rocco, who is a, he performed for a number of years under the name Catastrophe as a, he was like one of the first trans men uh, rappers and he like transitioned like on the scene and everything like that. And he was super excited about the project and was like, hey, I'll help you if you want to make it more of an ongoing thing. So we teamed up and, and made original plumbing and it went on for 10 years and it just, we put out our 20th and final issue in 2019, and after that, the Feminist Press uh, published a beautiful collection of all 10 years of our favorite articles and photographs, and it became, I mean, it was just like a beautiful ending to the project. But really, I, I started it as like a response to seeing trans people's bodies used in visual art um, by cisgender artists um, without any context. And that's fine, you know, on a level, but I, I just, as a trans person and as a trans artist, I wanted to have a space where we were like able to create our own space, tell our own stories and have it be beautiful aesthetically and sexy. Are there particular uh, like uh, moments from uh, original plumbing that you're really proud of? The first like few years were so amazing and so intense because it just really exploded. Um, It just became very popular and in a way that was unprecedented because it was just, it was two of us making this and distributing it and, and, you know, doing every aspect of it. And it, and like, you know, the promotion of it and then throwing events to keep the word out there and to get people excited about it. And it just kind of created a space, not only like in print and like in even like the art book world, but also like in the nightlife world, it became like its own thing. Um, and I think what I'm most proud of is just, you know, the fact that 
like creating it felt like you were in a, I was in a bubble really. But when I would get like emails from people, from parents, from young trans people thanking me for it. And I still get messages like that to this day. Those are the moments that I'm really proud of, you know, knowing that it has helped people, that it made people feel less alone and less isolated. And um, people have told me that they've used the magazine as a coming out tool for their parents you know, that kind of stuff. What was some of the content? Like if somebody opened up uh, an issue, like what would they find inside? Well, every issue was theme-based because I love a theme. So the first issue was the bedroom issue. Um, and that's because I, as I, I was photographing everybody for it, um, and I didn't have a studio space, so I would just ask them if I could shoot them in their bedroom. So that's why it became the bedroom issue. And it was very like, there was some nudes in there and mostly everyone was in their underwear and it became, it was like super sexy, you know, and fun. But um, as we went on, things got more serious. Um, there was a hero issue that we had. We put out um, a few years into it, which, and we put Lou Sullivan on the cover, who was a, a, a gay trans man, one of the first trans men to, a documented gay trans man to die of AIDS. And he was a huge um, activist and, and person who fought for gay trans men to be visible and to be able to transition because during his years, um, when he was alive and like and transitioning seventies, eighties, um, he, the doctors would not allow you to transition, um, if you were gay. So if, you know, as a trans man wanted to transition and he wanted to date men, they're like, that's, they wouldn't let you do that because, um, at the time it was like the only reason to transition was to be heterosexual or something. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know what was going on with the doctors, but the hero issue was uh, mm-hmm. one of my favorites. Um, we also did like a, a family issue um, with parents and, you know, kids. And there we did like, then we did like more fun ones, like this uh, a skateboarding issue, uh, which was very uh, inspired by teen magazines, the way that it looked aesthetically. Right. Going, d- diving back into your, into your collection, basically. For yep. inspiration. Yeah. No, honestly, it's always like teen magazines have always been like this source for me. <laughs> And and this was it was pretty like widely distributed, right? Like it, this was something people could get like just all over the all over the world or all over the country. All over the world, but it was all distributed by us. So we would send them out to independently, we like to indie bookstores, like anyone who wanted it. Mm-hmm. You know, any store that wanted it, we would do that. Um, we would send it out, but it was never um, distributed at like a, a chain. No, but we did have like our own distributors at one point that were sending it all around like the West Coast and things like that. But that was probably the biggest struggle of making a magazine is like distributing and then actually like following up to get paid. It's like very hard. Mm. Yeah. And also like a rough time to be doing like print media. Oh my God, totally. 2009 when everything was dying, everything was going under, but we managed to thrive and it was like, it wasn't necessarily like a, like a moneymaker that was like, you know, allowing us to not have other jobs. It was, but it was, um, it was able to publish itself. Was there anything that you produced for it that um, that surprised you? Hmm. I guess one thing that like pushed me was um, we we had a lot of requests for a sports issue, mm. and neither of us were into sports really. So uh, we ended we did a jock issue, and it was really fun. But I guess that one surprised me. You know, it's I guess what surprised me was the fact that it went on for ten years, and that it started out as like this sexy fun project. Um, cheeky, you know, and it evolved into something more um, as it went on. And, and we realized the seriousness of like, you know, producing a, a trans project like this, like, you can't just ignore all the issues that are happening in, in the community. And we um, were able to touch on on some 
some issues. So um, that was cool. <laughs> so I, I know, like, obviously the lives of trans people are, are like widely varied as, as much as they are for anybody else. So um, did you find in producing the, the magazine that there were, were there like common touchstones that um, people were like, Oh, weird. Like that, that's part of just a shared culture for, for some reason, somehow, like, I don't know if it's like boy bands or, or teen magazines or whatever, but like, are, are there things that just like topics or hobbies or something that just like came up a lot for a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds? You know, the pride in being shirtless, if you've, if you wanted to and had top surgery, that kind of mm-hmm. thing was, um, I mean, that it's kind of like, you know, reclaim, like feeling like so comfortable in your body in like allowing yourself to feel hot and sexy and, you know, pose for these photographs and, or, you know, or submit these selfies to be published, things like that, I think was an ongoing thing is like, you know, loving yourself, allowing yourself that. Was that something like that, that you experienced as well? Like, did you have like kind of a, a struggle around selfies and, and photos of yourself? Cause it seems like you're, you're very behind the camera or like behind the scenes rather than out front. Yeah. Um, I don't think I really had a hard, I don't think I'm like, too like camera shy um so i mean I, i'm a little attention shy sometimes um yeah i don't really i, I grew up with around a lot of photographs you know i had a mother who, i have a mother who takes tons of photographs who made tons of books like every year there'd be like three new binders of photo albums that she would put together um so i always had like a love and appreciation for photography as a, as a source of memory you know i enjoy yeah i think i, I i've even enjoyed taking pictures of myself so I don't really have that that issue as much, but yeah, it actually seems like um, documenting things is, is pretty important to you. You mentioned like even one of the characters in Stand by Me is is a writer, so it seems like there's something important about like capturing a moment or um, you know, re- reflecting an experience back to other people who weren't there. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I think that like as a visual artist and as an editor and as a writer, I'm writing for television now. Like there is something about storytelling that could, you know, it can happen on so many different mediums and really like, you know, original plumbing was a a big form of storytelling um, just through the photographs and interviews and um, having, creating space for stories that have never been told before is very important to me. And I I think that like, you know, not being afraid to, to, to see the worth in a story or in a character. Well, tell me about like moving on from original plumbing. So that went for about 10 years, right? Yeah. Yep. And was there like a moment where you're like, okay, I think we've done everything. It's time to wind it down. Yeah. Well, you know, in the beginning we decided like, because it was so popular very quickly, we're like, well, let's do 10 episodes. We'll do 10 issues. Um, And we'll, we'll, first we're like, we'll do, we'll do a year. So that's four, four issues. We'll see how it goes. And it was just like, it just kept going and going. And all of a sudden it was like, okay, we were putting them out less and less frequently. And I decided, I think together we decided 20 is a really nice number. It's like a solid number. I don't want to stop at like issue 19, you know? So mm-hmm. as we were getting up there, we're like, let's just do 20. And then that's, that's that. So um, that's kind of how we decided on that. Was there a, like how much of things changed from when you started to where you finished? Like what was, you know, life like for trans people? Like what was trans culture in 2009 versus 2019? I have no idea what trans culture was in 2009, honestly. Um it was like, you know, online um, and it was before Instagram. So there was like not much going on. So when this magazine mm. came out, people freaked out. They were like so excited. So that's what was happening then. And then now you're looking at a huge Instagram specific platform of, of trans community, which is great. Um, 
but you're looking also at like culture moves so fast that and because of you know apps and, and, and like the internet and stuff like that that it's just things get lost so i mean this project could be lost within months now that's something that went on for 10 years because because mm-hmm. we don't have an active instagram anymore so it's like you know what i mean it's it's interesting how that happens but but beyond that what else has changed is like media has blown up you know you're seeing trans actors um, playing trans roles playing non-trans roles you're not you're not really seeing cisgender actors playing trans roles anymore were there opportunities that you got because you were doing the magazine? Like, did that open doors for you? Yeah, I believe it did open doors. I mean, I definitely um, marketed myself in a way that I put original plumbing. As, you know, I, I definitely used original plumbing as a project that I had worked on for so long and that I, you know, I wanted to work in television and film. And when I would see an opportunity, I would, you know, be able to, I would at least try to go for it and, and, and like link it to this project that I've worked on forever. Um, the first time that... I was able to, you know, make that leap into television was working on a show called Gaycation for Viceland. And I was working as a, as an associate producer, really like finding stories of about LGBT people across the world. Um, every episode, it was hosted by Ellen Page and it was every episode and Ian Daniel, it was hosted by Ellen Page and Ian Daniel. And every episode was a different country and you'd go, they would travel there and talk to people about like the good, the bad and the ugly of queer experiences where they lived, you know, and it wasn't always uplifting. It was, you know, pretty hard, intense places that they would go to. So that was my jump into television, nonfiction. And then um, I did that for a number of years on different shows, like kind of producing work. How did you just like jump into that kind of like, how do, how do you go from like, I'm not working television at all to I'm producing segments with a like a movie star? Um, I, well, they, Ellen Page, actually put us in, put Rocco and I in an episode before I was working on the show um, to talk about original plumbing. And I kept in touch with Ian because I had actually known Ian Daniel, the other host, from years before from New York through mutual friends. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if you ever need help, you know, I'm in New York too. Um, Viceland was in New York. And, I, and, you know, if you ever need a consultant, a trans consultant, whatever. And then they started bringing me in and then they offered me, you know, a job on the second season and on a couple of different, um, they had a couple specials, like after the election or one, they had a special. Yeah. It was like all about post-Trump inauguration, all that stuff and the world for trans, for LGBT people. Um, so that was really, it was really like, you know, knowing someone involved and, and being in the right place at the right time and really like bugging people <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and staying on their radar. And then after that job wrapped, I did the same kind of job, but for like, History Channel shows and um, Animal Planet shows, things that had nothing to do with transness at all. It was just like, the, it was just producing, you know, other segments for other shows that had nothing to do with queerness. Um, but I found that it was very similar to what I'd been doing, you know, for years. It's like finding stories, um, like writing out, you know, what the story would be in, in, a, in a specific segment or uh, in a nonfiction scenario situation how do you do like how do you find stories like what does that process look like well for me like for vacation it was you know the people the 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 executive producers and the producers above me would have you know a a sheet a beat sheet of like the stories we're going to tell uh, of you know stories we wanted to tell stories that were like options that were you know what kind of themes do we want to talk about? What's going on in this country? And how can we express that with people who have had these experiences? And then it's kind of like me going on Facebook and then looking for, you know, trans or, you know, queer people in Paris or outside of France or, 
Ukraine. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. You know, find a trans person in Ukraine, you know, let's talk like that kind of thing. And I would use Facebook as a huge, you know, way for me to connect with other people. And because, you know, when original plumbing was becoming very popular, Facebook was like the thing. So I have like, you know, thousands of Facebook friends that are, that are, are not really my friends in real life, but are just fans of the project. So that was an amazing resource, you know, because that's like people all over the country, all over the world who are queer in some way, who know, who might know someone else, you know? So I would put calls out for like certain kinds of people or experiences. And I would, it was a lot of, I would get a lot of uh, traction that way. So tell me about the work that you're doing these days and, and what brought you to, it's slightly different, the kind of work that you're doing now, right? Yeah. Well, um, I just wrapped as a, as a writer for the reboot of Gossip Girl, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a, I've been trying to, you know, break in as a staff writer for a television in a television writer's room for a number of years now. And that's why I moved to Los Angeles. And there is something like so freeing and fun about creating a world and character and a story that did not happen to me. And that is not, you know, not related to someone's actual life. Um, quite opposite of my experience working in, you know, nonfiction television storytelling. There's just something freeing and very fun. And also like there's um, working in, with like YA characters, young adult is like my favorite, you know, the, uh, again, like we're tied to like teen magazines, I guess, somehow. Yeah, it really seems like that's, um, that's been sort of a world that you've become an expert in. Uh, it's just like that, that moment in a person's life when they're on in the weird, like, you know, nebula between childhood and adulthood, like, what are the experiences that shape a person at that very crucial time? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if I'm an expert, but it's definitely something that I'm intrigued in. And like, I really don't know what quote unquote, the kids are up to these days. You know what I mean? Like, I feel way too old to be writing for like a 16 year old character. But I think the kids are smarter. And I think that they're smarter than they've ever been because of the resources they have and the connection they have to people all over the world because of phones and the interweb. So yeah, it's a blast. Um, And besides that, I recently also co-wrote a feature film about Billy Tipton, who is a, a trans band leader, jazz musician who never identified as trans. Um, he died in the 90s, or he died in 89. And uh, he was outed as trans after he died because mm. uh, he was married for years to many different women and had two adopted children and three adopted children. And none of them knew that he was um, actually female bodied, is like quote unquote female bodied. Mm. That's something it's real challenging um, to talk about people who today like uh, live lives or have attributes that today we would consider trans, but like the vocabulary either didn't exist or the space didn't exist where they could speak openly. And so I imagine it's just really challenging to know what words to use exactly to, to talk about those really important historical figures that need to be talked about. But also, you know, the, the language has changed so much or was insufficient when they were alive. So how do you how do you have that conversation respectfully? I mean, I think we bring we, we the way to have that respectfully is to acknowledge that, you know, and to, to actually discuss, like, what does it mean to be claiming an icon, you know, to create an icon out of someone who never really wanted that name to begin with? You know, he never wanted that ide- that identity as, as, as far as we know. Um, but then there's also. That is a that's actually a part of the film because it is a process documentary, and uh, so we're discussing his life. We're and we're talking with people who are you know um, jazz historians and trans historians, and also it's about like there's a story of when he first passed. There was a huge push of like 
uh, the lesbian community at the time, claiming him as like, you know, being like super excited that, that Billy Tipton was uh, outed in this way because um, they're like, look at this, it's a le- lesbian representation, you know? Mm. Um, but then as, as language has evolved and as identity has evolved and as you're seeing more information on Billy comes out when you learn that, you know, Billy has said he didn't identify as a lesbian and he also um, didn't want to, he lived as a man, his entire, he died as a man, you know? So that's saying something like right there is that, you know, he probably wasn't a lesbian. And if he lived and died as a man, he, at the time, the word transgender was not being used, but like as a free, frequently, but it was, uh, you know, it existed, but it wasn't the way that it is now in vernacular. But if you just look at the fact that he lived and died as a man, that's a, that's a trans experience of some sort, you know, mm. whether or not he was, a, you know, identified as transgender or transsexual, that's a trans experience in some way. So how long have you been in Los Angeles now? Uh, a little over three years. How are you finding the um, environment for like, you know, we always hear about like, oh, it's tough for queer people in Hollywood and particularly for trans people in Hollywood. Like, are, are you finding that to be true? I think it's hard for a lot of people in Hollywood. I think that... Um, I like to see, I like to look at my experience as having an asset of, you know, of having a different story to tell, a different experience in life. And I really make sure that everybody that I am up for a job, you know, in time I'm like connecting with someone who could potentially be hiring me or is interested in learning more about me for future work, like that they realize that that's a part of my life and my experience. And, you know, what sets me apart from like, Someone who had the traditional route of going to high school, going to college, um, you know, and graduating from film school. My experience is that my life was very up and down in terms of, you know, all of my my different um, jobs and uh, and going to college later in life. And um, the magazine that I produced for 10 years and and my transgender history like that is what makes me different and an asset. So I can't speak for anybody else, but like, that's just the way that I'm looking at it. <laughs> Do you have like dream projects that, that aren't, you aren't working on right now, but like the thing that you would love to produce? Oh gosh. Well, right now there's like, there's like projects I can't really talk about that I'm in, that I'm working on in the development process with, with production companies. But, um, I mean, a dream project would be like, honestly, I love, I love the experience of working in a writer's room. I love being with like, you know, a group of people that are completely different from me and um, creating a world with some, with, with these otherwise strangers. You know, I think that's such an interesting project and it's so um, much different than creating a, a very small project and having it all riding on your shoulders, you know, between you and another person. Um, that is what I, freeing for me, you know, it's, it's, despite it being like, it's not a normal nine to five job and the shows only last for like six months. And then you're like out of work, (laughs) which I'm experiencing now also during COVID-19, you know, nothing is in production. It's, it's just freeing to have that many collaborators. (laughs) Yeah. Again, like you, you've got like that um, sort of group dynamic going on, like the chosen family of like a lot of the, you know, whether boy bands or stand by me or whatever. Um, It sounds like the, what you're, what you're really reveling in there is the, power of having a, uh, a, a a clan of people that you're working alongside. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so much fun. And it's such a privilege to be here. And I, I've worked really hard 
you know, to get to this position that I'm at right now. And it took like, you know, becoming a PA in my thirties and, and just like working these like support jobs in the, in Hollywood for a number of years before I got my shot. Um, but it's, uh, it was worth it. Awesome. Well, Amos, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. This was really fun. I love talking about PB Herman. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Amos for joining me. We talked a bit about the queer aesthetics of Pee-wee Herman, and for this week's recommendation, I hope you'll take a look at the Netflix special Pee-wee's Big Holiday. I'm not a big believer in nostalgia reboots, which are almost always unable to live up to the unreliable memories of the original, but Pee-wee's Big Holiday is a bundle of unmitigated charm and delight, just like Pee-wee himself. The film is centered around friendship, and the lengths to which we'll go for our friends. Pee-wee plays a small-town boy who's never vacationed far from home, but when he meets a famous hunky actor named Joe, he takes the plunge and goes on an epic journey to New York for Joe's birthday party. The story tingles with queerness throughout, from the breathless interest of the male leads to the suggestive insertion of a fist in a friendship bracelet. But what makes the film so joyful to me is Pee-wee's confidence, self-assuredness, and comfort in his own weird skin. He is, to be clear, a very strange boy, and at no point does it even seem possible to imagine him being anything else. Even when he's in trouble and things aren't going his way, he is unswervingly himself, giddy, curious, playful, and sincere. And so are the heroes he encounters, from hairdressers to bank robbers to an odd heiress. Each one is a strange, happy caricature. Each one is unabashedly eccentric. Each one, as we all should aspire to be, is a peewee in their own big holiday. Thanks again for listening, and thanks to everyone who makes The Sewers of Paris possible on Patreon. Patreon backers get rewards like stickers in the mail, a copy of my book Defining Marriage, and also exclusive access to the Patreon-only podcast Cozy Pants, in which I chat with my partner James about the entertainment that's bringing us joy right now. Head over to patreon.com slash mattbaum to support the show and get access to those benefits. I post clips of the stuff that we talk about on each episode on Twitter and Facebook. Reach out and let me know your thoughts on the show at sewerspodcast at gmail.com. And join us for the next live stream on May 9th at 11 a.m. Pacific. There's a link to that pinned to the top of the Sewers of Paris Twitter feed. Check out my other podcasts, Queens of Adventure and Queens of Adventure Legends, two comedy adventure shows featuring drag queens on epic fantasy quests. The theme song for the Sewers of Paris is Parisian from filmmusic.io by Kevin McLeod of Incomptech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0. And until next time, croissant. <laughs>